Corinthians chapter 4. In the world of towing, if you've ever had to tow something or lift something heavy, maybe even in the world of climbing, if we're talking about climbing with ropes <clears throat> and gear and things, uh, it doesn't matter how strong your chain is or your wire is or your rope is, uh, how much weight it's rated to carry, how strong the connection is. It's really only as strong as its weakest point. Right? We hear phrases like this. You can imagine someone climbing and clipping or tying to some rock or something that's cracked. And then they put all of their weight on it. And it doesn't matter how strong their rope was. It really matters how strong the, the, the weakest point was. And if the, the thing that they're anchored to is at all weak, all of the preparation they've made aside from that isn't going to help. So if you're towing and you attach to something that's plastic only, not wrapped around the wheels or something like this, it doesn't matter how, many, how much horsepower you have on the engine that's towing this thing or how strong the rope is. I was recently looking at tow ropes, how much they're rated to tow. And it's amazing that a rope can tow as much as they're rated to tow. But it doesn't matter if you're just wrapped around a plastic fender or some piece of metal that's just going to rip right through. As we come to the end of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is really clarifying for the church how he endures in gospel ministry. And he's really shining light on the fact that <clears throat> What they're anchored to is a worthy anchor. It's not really even about the strength of his faith or his own self-determination. He has a worthy object of faith. And because the object is so great, he can endure great suffering. In the context, of course, we're talking about gospel ministers. He's an apostle with his co-workers. They're doing gospel ministry, missionary work. They're doing uh, pastoral work at various times. But I do believe there's an application here for anyone working as a minister of God. There's application here to parents who are confronting sin in children and trying to teach them the ways of God, really preparing the ground for the gospel later in life. There's application for employees opening your mouth about the precepts of God and the good news of the gospel. Uh, there's application for siblings, whether, whether young or teenagers, or old, with, with family members who are opposed to you for a, a, a stance on the truth that you have to maintain in good conscience before the Lord, and a desire to see them come to the Lord as you live obediently to God. There's application beyond just pastors to endure in uh, more than gospel ministry, but Paul here is talking about how to endure what I'm calling in gospel ministry. Let's read 2 Corinthians 4 together, and our text for this evening begins in verse 13. You see this phrase, we do not lose heart. Pay attention to that when it comes back in verse 16. 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things, the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke, we also believe. Therefore, we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Paul is really showing his heart for ministry. Why does he do the things that he does? How does he continue doing the things that he's doing? What are the experiences that he's going through that really should make him quit? How does he endure them for the glory of God? If you look down at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 12, you see some of what he's dealing with with this particular church and how he's making this distinction between taking pride in appearance and not in heart. Look at verse 12 of chapter 5. We are not, again, commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. There are those with influence in the thinking of this church or on the thinking of this church that care more about what their pastor looks like than about what he preaches. They're taking pride in appearance and not in the true conviction and the faith and the doctrine of the man. They care about how successful their church seems more than they care how faithful to the gospel they are as a church. And that's a problem, and Paul's dealing with it. So Paul's really revealing the inner workings of his ministry mindset and his philosophy to show that he's taking pains to please God, both in what he does and in how he does it. So at the beginning of the chapter we read, he's addressing an, a, maybe apparent lack of success in ministry. Why aren't more people believing? Why doesn't Paul have a bigger uh, number next to his name? And then in verses 7 through 12, he's interpreting maybe what may appear as a lack of strength to minister. What about all these afflictions that he's dealing with? Why can't he just rise above the problems of life like some of these other people seem to? And then in our text for this evening, he's shedding light on 
what may be perceived as an apparent lack of ambition for ministry. Why isn't it more about Paul? Why isn't Paul innovating in his message and promoting himself to seek popularity and glory? What's really motivating him? Paul's giving some insight into what keeps him going, and it's not outward success as the Corinthians may define it. Really, I think we'll see it's faith in the word of God. This is several ways I think we'll see that faith is operating so that Paul can endure in gospel ministry. And I just want to point these out to you. You see in verse 13, having the same spirit of faith. See the, the mention of faith there. But he refers to the Old Testament according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. So this is a conviction that he shares with a, a psalmist and a pattern that he's following that the psalmist follows. I believe, therefore I spoke. We're doing the same thing. We believe, we're convinced of the truth, and so we're speaking. And we don't stop speaking. What else does Paul believe? How else is faith operating? Knowing he believes certain doctrines that Jesus himself taught, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. He has faith that's believing the truth, and there's a worthy anchor for him to lash his faith to. There's a resurrection. There's glorification coming. He has proper motives that are informed by his faith. All things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. This is really the engine room of Paul's heart. The good of people that he's witnessing to, abounding to the glory of God. But then he also has this perspective that's informed by faith. Look at this perspective here. Therefore, we do not lose heart. You see there the mention of endurance. We're not giving up. We can endure. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Again, this is how he's enduring. There's constant renewal going on internally, even though the externals are really falling apart and breaking down. But then here's a perspective informed by faith. For momentary, light, affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. It's not even worth starting the math problem because I know that it's just such an overwhelming amount of glory compared to the suffering. This is the, the sight of faith. He can't see this now, but he believes it. But it's not because his faith is so strong and the rope is so strong. It's because the object is so worthy. You see this? How does he maintain this perspective of faith? Verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What is he talking about? Things that he's not seeing. We look at the things which are not seen. The just shall live by faith. This is what Paul is talking about. This is how faith operates so that you can endure serving the Lord. I want you to see, starting in verse 13, that biblical convictions first of all, will keep you preaching the gospel. Biblical convictions will keep you preaching the gospel. He says, having the same spirit of faith, really this, he's not referring to the Holy Spirit, but this attitude, this conviction of faith. And he refers back to Psalm 116. Why don't you turn back there with me to Psalm 116.
you'll see in verse 10 what he's referring to. Paul quotes exactly the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. But look in verse 5 and see what kind of psalm this is. There's rescue in this psalm. There's suffering and rescue. Look in verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. So the psalmist here is praising God for rescuing him from his affliction. And now if you think back to what Paul has been writing to the Corinthians, you see why he might identify with a psalm like this. God has delivered him from his affliction. He's sustaining him in his affliction. And it's not an accident that Paul refers back to the psalm. He's been steeped in the psalm. Look in verse 10, and it might confuse us a little bit why he might say this, but verse 10, our Bible says, I believed when I said I am greatly afflicted. So it seems here that the psalmist is saying, uh, on the surface, it might seem like he's saying, I believed when I said I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars, in the sense that he's saying I was telling the truth about this. I believe the sense of the Greek and the sense here is that I believed in God when I said these things. I am greatly afflicted, but I believe in God. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. Men might not be trustworthy, but God is trustworthy. So what keeps Paul speaking, you can go back to 2 Corinthians, is what he's convinced is true. His soul is resting on this, and it's actually leading him into suffering. He's not at all even thinking twice about entering into more suffering because he believes. He has this conviction. And what is the conviction? It's that God will deliver him through his troubles. Maybe not away from his troubles. He won't end the troubles, but he will sustain him and keep him and ultimately deliver him from his troubles. There are a lot of things that won't keep you preaching the gospel. If you're depending on popularity, to preach the gospel, that will not keep you doing it. If you're hoping for ease in doing it, that's going to give way. If you're looking for political favor by preaching the gospel, that is a false friend. Church history shows that. If you're just depending on always being received and never being rejected, that will not sustain you in gospel ministry. Even a self-determination to continue, devoid of faith in the promises of God to deliver you, that is not enough. You have to be convinced that God will keep you even when you're being rejected. When preaching the gospel brings suffering, there are a million things easier to do than continuing to preach the gospel. But when you're convinced that God powerfully works through the preaching of the gospel message, you can keep going. If you're not convinced of that, you're not going to be able to say with Paul, I believed, therefore I spoke. What is Paul speaking? He's preaching the gospel. We're preaching Christ crucified. God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is why Paul talks about Christ so much, because as he exalts Christ, as he preaches Christ, God works in men's hearts. Paul is convinced that God works by the gospel. And so he keeps preaching it. 
I believed, therefore I spoke. So we should examine ourselves and consider whether you're convinced that men must have the gospel, that that's their only hope. Sometimes we can get it in our minds that if, if this legislation was changed, things would be better. Okay. Are you convinced that people must have the gospel for them to be right with God? The greatest need that every person has is to be right with God through Christ. Do you believe that? Well, what does Paul believe in particular? He says in verse 14, this is, this is the spirit of his faith, the attitude of his faith. I believe that God will deliver me as I preach the gospel. Men must have the gospel. I'm convinced of that. Therefore, I'm going to keep on preaching. What is the particular truth, the particular truths that are operating in Paul's mind that so convince him? These biblical convic convictions that will keep him preaching the gospel? Knowing, verse 14, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. That's the first thing. And it's kind of connected, knowing he will present us with you. What is he talking about? I know that there's a resurrection for me. And I know that there's glorification for me. God raised Jesus from the dead. God, of course, was pleased to crush Jesus for sinners, Isaiah tells us. But it pleased God to raise Jesus from the dead and raise him to his right hand in glory. People saw this happen. Jesus said it was going to happen. This is God's acceptance of his sacrifice. God was pleased to raise him from the dead. He did this. He defeated death, just like he said he would. Likewise, he will raise believers, just like he said. Jesus said in John 5, 28, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. All people will have a resurrection. It's a matter of what follows your resurrection. Some will be raised to eternal life and bliss and fellowship with God because they believed in Jesus. All the rest will be raised to an eternal life of judgment in hell because God's wrath against sin is eternal. And it has to be eternal because God is an eternal God. And it's just that it would go on forever and ever, unending. Paul is convinced that his resurrection is secure because God said it, and it's with Jesus because he believes in Jesus, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus, a resurrection to life. Really what's going on here is that Paul had lost his life for Christ's sake and found his soul safe. It's for that reason that Paul had nothing left in life to lose. There was nothing left in life that could crush him. What did Jesus say? He who tries to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. This is what Paul has done. He's just given up his life to Christ and he knows it's secure. There's nothing in life that's going to crush him. Being convinced that God will raise you unto life gives you a tenacity in preaching the gospel. 
that you will not have otherwise. Because when you're convinced that God will raise you from the dead unto eternal life because you believe in Jesus, you don't need to go about trying to preserve your own life. You don't need to soften the message of the gospel. No, preach it. Christ died to save sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No man can come to God on his own. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. All men everywhere must forsake sin and cling to Christ as their only hope in life and in death. There's, there's nothing that we have to change about this because our lives are secure. We will be raised again with Christ. But it's not just that Jesus will raise us, Paul says. God will raise us with Jesus, but also that he will present us with you. I believe this is referring to glorification, the, the, the completion of our Christ-likeness, the completion of our redemption. You know, in Ephesians 5, when Paul is giving instructions to husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, he will present the church to himself in all her glory. He will present the church to himself, spotless, blameless, completely perfect. This is the image here. He will present us with you on that day, completed, perfect. God justifies sinners. He sanctifies them. He will glorify them. Paul says in Philippians, what God began, he will complete. He will bring it to completion. So if you're talking about how Paul feels about this, when death works in us, that doesn't feel like spiritual growth, does it? It just feels like this hurts. But our feelings can betray us, can't they? We need the conviction that we will meet Christ face to face and that we will be like him when we see him because we will see him as he is. I would just point out here that what is sustaining Paul really is an application of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life to those who believe in him. And Paul is applying that to himself. Okay, I am guaranteed eternal life because I believe in Jesus. And that sustains me in this suffering. He's taking the truth of the gospel and applying it to his life. And we can do the same. This is what it takes. If you're stranded in the ocean and there's debris around you, you're not going to pick something that you know is going to sink to help you float, right? You need something that's going to keep you above water, even when you're tired and you can't swim anymore. This is a worthy object of our faith. It's biblical convictions that will keep you preaching the gospel. But it's not just Paul's own resurrection and glorification that he's convinced about that keeps him in the fight, but it's actually what's going on for other people too that is keeping him motivated. Biblical motivations will keep you evangelizing the lost. This is another way that faith operates. Look in verse 15. For all things are for your sakes. It's not just me and us. It's you guys too. And not just you, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. It's actually about God. What is, when he says all things, what is he talking about? It's his, it's his preaching of the gospel. It's his suffering, like he's talked about. Shipwrecks, beatings, all of these things cares for the church, 
his endurance, all of these things. It's not meaningless or random that he's going through, through these things. He's really telling them his why. What is keeping him in the fight, considering all of the opposition he faces, love for, love for others, and the glory of God? This is what motivates him. Everything that Paul is doing is for the purpose of seeing grace increase in people's lives. He's really pouring out his life to see life given to others. Isn't this really what parents do? They're pouring out their life to give life to someone else. And when you when I feel like we're really just starting to get a taste of this ourselves, as you're, as you're giving of yourself and giving of yourself, you realize, okay, I need to do this to help my child grow. And the more I try to hang on and hold back, I, I see that has an effect. But you're, you're giving your life to give life to another. This is what Paul is talking about. All of these things are for your sakes so that the grace which is spreading or you see there being multiplied through the many, you may have in the margin, it's, it's multiplying as it's being spread from person to person. And then as those people are growing in grace and in maturity and likeness to Jesus Christ, he really loves these people. Do you think there were times that the Corinthians thought he might have other motives? Read earlier in this letter, read all over this letter, and Paul is talking about, I caused you sorrow. And I didn't really want to do this, but I see that it brought about repentance. When Paul is writing this letter and really bringing them to sorrow, do you think it was easy to doubt his motives? Man, this guy must hate us. Does, again, a parent ever experience this from children while pursuing their good? You say, no, you can't do that. And they cop an attitude at you. And maybe you can't explain. Maybe they won't understand. But they're resisting you. But your motive really is love for them. This is Paul's attitude towards this church. All things are for your sake. So that the grace which is spreading to more and more people... This is love for you. I want this for your benefit. But what's that's kind of the penultimate motive. That's not Paul's ultimate. What's his ultimate? I want grace for you, and I want you to grow in grace. I want it to spread to other people so they too can experience the grace of God. But I want all of this to keep growing so that giving of thanks will abound to the glory of God. This is Paul's ultimate motive that keeps him evangelizing the lost. Because as people come to Christ and grow in grace, praise for God increases too. I believe it was John Piper who said, missions exists because worship doesn't. Think about that. We have to evangelize people because people aren't worshiping God. The very thing God created them to do. The only explanation for growth in grace is the work of God in a life. If someone is growing more and more like Jesus Christ. It's not because they're so great. It's not because their pastor is so effective. It's not because they have the right program. It's because God is working in them and God deserves the credit for that. We really should be careful to give all credit to God for salvation, our own and others. And I would also note, and I think I, we can make this application even to next week, thanksgiving for salvation 
glorifies God. So I would encourage you about next Sunday, as we have an opportunity for a Thanksgiving praise service, think about how you can thank God for grace in your life, because that does glorify him. Look at this. So that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound. So as people are, as grace is spreading from person to person and people are increasing in grace, giving of thanks is abounding so everybody feels good. No, to the glory of God. It actually pleases God the more we give him thanks for growing in grace. So I would encourage you to consider that. This is what keeps Paul going. Love for others, glory to God. Convictions for ministry and motives for ministry that are rooted in Scripture, these are keys to enduring in gospel ministry. But then Paul takes us maybe one step further into his life and his heart. Makes it very clear what he's doing regularly. You could say even daily to keep him in the fight. And what is it? Therefore, we do not lose heart. How does he not give up? But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Third, biblical meditation will keep you growing in the truth. His outer man, he's talking about his body, his physical capabilities, maybe even his mental sharpness. He's, from the time he's, he was born, he's already dying. This is all of us, right? But Paul especially, he's been beaten. How many broken bones do you think went unmended? He had Dr. Luke with him, okay? In God's providence, he probably had good medical care. But this is a man who should not be able physically to keep going. But he's saying our outer man is decaying. It's being destroyed on account of all of these things, these beatings, these shipwrecks, sleeplessness, hunger, exposure, cares. You can give yourself ulcers by worry, can't you? It has a physical effect on you. Despite that, he's not growing weary is the word. We don't lose heart. He's not giving up. He's not becoming discouraged to the point of quitting. Because while there's decay on the outside, there's renewal on the inside. There's renewal on the inside. This word actually being renewed could be translated uh, renovate. He's being restored. How is the inner man renewed? Paul doesn't explain that here. We'd have to look elsewhere. We could look at a passage like Ephesians 3. Verses 16 through 20, where Paul is praying that God would strengthen that church in the inner man to be able to understand with all the saints what the love of God is. And so that they would be able to grow up to all the fullness of God is his prayer there. But go ahead and turn over to Colossians 3. He's talking about the, the inner person that can be changed into Christ's likeness. I think you could call this the new man, the new nature. But I want to look at this word renewed in Colossians chapter 3, renovated, restored, you could say to a previous desirable state. What is it being renewed to? Colossians chapter 3 verse 10. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self 
who is being renewed, same word, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. What is this restoration to? This is a restoration to what God created humanity to be. We, we say that at the fall, God's image was marred and it's defaced. But what God is doing in redeeming people and making them like Jesus, the perfect man, the unfallen man, the unmarred image of God, he's restoring men. Maybe not physically, yet into the image of Christ. And how does this happen? I heard someone say this week, you don't slide into godliness. It's not the default to just accidentally trip into it. It takes work. If you ever, we have some uh, like every every person who's ever lived in a house has to become proficient at some home maintenance things, but we have some people that do it as their job, okay? Where they tear everything out. They go in and they see all the disrepair and they demo and say this if Thomas here tonight. They demo everything and they take it all the way back to done. Right? You have to tear all the guts out. Maybe strip it down to the studs. Maybe you have to move a set of stairs. You have to do all these things and it takes work. It doesn't happen on its own that a house, the interior of a house is restored, any part of a house. Further, not working on a house doesn't just leave it static. What happens if a house is just abandoned? Bugs get in, rodents get in, mold grows, water gets in, there's damage. Things tend to get worse if we're not working on them. And just like it might happen in a house, it doesn't all just immediately look pretty. You have to take things away. I think that's a fitting image for what Paul is talking about in Colossians. Don't lie to each other. You've put that off. Don't, don't bring that rotted board back into your house. You've got to restore all the inner workings. And sometimes after you take all the bad stuff out, you've got to fix all the interior stuff that you're not going to see when it's all done. So you've got to rough in electric. You've got to fix boards. You've got to put in insulation. You've got to do plumbing and all of these things that are just the guts of the house that aren't glorious. It takes time. It takes work. And eventually you're going to start bringing things back in. And I've heard and I've done it personally, myself, very much. Once the drywall goes up, things start to go really fast. You get the flooring in. It's like, oh, I've got new flooring. You put the drywall up and then you prime and you paint and it's starting to look really nice. And then you're putting in your appliances and hanging all your lights and your fans and things like that. And things are starting to look good, but it takes time and it takes work. Paul is talking here about daily restoration. The work the progressive work of being renewed in Christ's image. And it happens by the word. This is the work of faith as we fellowship with God in his word, as we see the glory of Christ in the word, and we are changed into the same image by degrees from glory to glory. We must be always being renewed in the image of Christ by regular fellowship with him. I think you could even argue by what Paul says that it's daily. This is really arguing for regular, maybe daily patterns of fellowship with God and his word. He says day by day. And it might be imperceptible 
just like the when you spend all day working on one room of roughing an electric. You don't feel, it doesn't look like you got anything done, but it's progress. So take heart. If the Lord is doing even one small thing, give him credit for that. Don't doubt God that as you fellowship with him in the word, as the word of Christ dwells in you richly, that he really will change you. Biblical meditation will keep you growing in the truth. Fellowship with God in the word and by prayer and by fellowship with his people. Paul says, for that reason, therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And then finally, he's given us some insights into his endurance. He's got convictions informed by faith, motives that are really of faith. They're pleasing to God. And he's experiencing daily renewal. Even though he's getting weaker and less capable on the outside, there's more and more happening on the inside. There's greater strength, greater Christ-likeness. But finally, I think the last key to Endurance for gospel ministry is a biblical perspective. You have to have a biblical perspective to endure the suffering. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Get this, get this perspective here. Affliction is the idea of intense pressure. But how does he describe it? Momentary, light, affliction. Momentary, temporary, light. It's weightless. It's insignificant. Do you have the, the tree trucks driving down your road with the big uh, hose, you know, sucking all your leaves off the curb? And what are those, what are those trucks spitting out the back? Of course, they're mulching the leaves and sending them into the truck, right? And they're going to go dump them in Schwabel's parking lot. But sometimes you drive behind that and there's just all these little like pieces of leaves that, oh, that was probably from my yard. It's, it's just weightless. It's nothing. That's what Paul is calling this. It's absolutely insignificant. But he calls it affliction. It's intense pressure. How can he say that? It's because the suffering is doing something for him. He knows it by faith that the, the suffering is producing something for him in eternity. Sometimes comparing, Paul says, we compare ourselves among ourselves and we are unwise. Sometimes comparing, especially people to people, is unwise. But here, comparing is good. Comparing the temporary suffering with the eternal glory, this is what Paul is doing. And what does he find? It's, he finds that it's not even worth measuring. And I would say that he's really hanging his, really anchoring his faith to two things. It's that as we share in Christ's suffering, we will share in his glory. And he does that as he fixes his heart on things where Christ is seated at God's hand. And this idea we Maybe we don't have time to develop it fully. Why don't we turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We could turn to Romans 8. It's another passage that teaches this close, very close connection between our sharing in the sufferings of Christ and our sharing in his glory. I think you'll see from 1 Peter that it's even to the degree in which we share in Christ's suffering, we will 
to that same degree share in his glory. There's greater reward for greater suffering and faithfulness by God's grace. And I don't totally understand this, but this is the grace of God. And I believe the teaching of scripture. First Peter chapter one, verse six. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. So there's a close connection between our suffering for Christ and our glory with him when he is revealed in glory. But turn ahead to 1 Peter chapter 4. And verse 13, verse 12, rather. Maybe more familiar with verse 12. First Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Expect it, he says. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. I think the idea here is that the more you suffer for Christ, the more closely you will be associated with his glory when he is revealed. I think the sense is there, there's something about this that eludes us. How is the suffering of Christ his glory? Even when we think about Jesus being lifted up in his glory, and he's talking about being lifted up in the suffering of the cross, how is that? Absolute pain and rejection. How is that his glory? But when we see it, we'll know it. And we'll know that it's the most glorious thing. That our Savior endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, and he still loved them to death. That's his glory. We can't completely grasp the greatness of the glory of someone who suffers in our place despite our rejection. So what does this mean for you and me? It means take the rejection because that's what Christ knew. That was his glory to endure that for your sake and mine. So when you experience that, you're, you're, you're being like him. So that when his glory is finally revealed, it will also be revealed that you share in that glory. And that's an amazing thing. Endure the resistance because that's a Christ-like thing. Christ endured resistance. But how, how can we maintain this perspective on our sufferings? Not by fixating on the hardness itself. You can't get stuck looking at how hard it is. You have to have your eyes on something incomparably greater. Verse 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. How does he maintain this? While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And I would say this, fix your heart on things where Christ is. Fix your eyes, your faith on eternal things. When it feels like, and it seems like I can't do this, it's too much. It's too hard. I want to quit. 
perhaps it's because, because we have our eyes on the things that we see. That may be true. It may be too much for you, but you also need to lift your eyes to Christ because he will sustain you. This is how faith works. It, it tears eyes off of what seems so big and absolutely indomitable. We can't, we can't overcome it. It's too much for us. And it looks to this huge mountain vista behind this little traffic jam that is incomparably greater. And it says, no, I will be raised again. And we might not immediately see the connection between these truths and our problems. But this is what Paul is saying, how his faith is working to help him endure. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. Why? The things which are seen are temporal. That traffic jam is going to clear up. You might even get stuck there for two hours because they blocked all lanes of traffic. But it's just temporary. But the things which are unseen that we apprehend by faith are eternal. How do we endure in serving the Lord, in gospel ministry specifically, but in whatever way that you are serving the Lord? Do you have biblical convictions about every man's need for the gospel? Are you convinced that that's what they need more than anything? That will keep you preaching the gospel. Do you have biblical motivations? Do you believe that evangelizing is love for others and it's glorifying to God? Is that what's keeping you going? Or are you seeking some kind of glory for yourself? Are you being renewed daily on the truth? And do you have these biblical perspectives in order to endure suffering? That this is just temporary. It, it seems like it will never end. It seems too much to bear. But God is greater than all of those things. And he will hold you. Let's pray. Father, this is a challenge to our faith. And perhaps you've pointed out areas to us where our faith is weak. And we, we sense our unwillingness, our inability, our weakness to live by faith in these ways and to take your word for us in these ways. So Lord, we would pray, strengthen our faith. Give us faith that really is not so much even about the, the, the enormity of our faith and how great we are, but how worthy of an object of faith we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Come to earth, died, buried, risen again, seated in heaven. Help us to fix our eyes on him and to live by faith in the Son of God so that we can endure whatever hardship you bring to us. Or these are things that may be easy to say, but they are hard to do, and we really truly need your help, and we ask for it. We entrust ourselves to you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.